wanted to talk about was I really born this way. In other words, there are things that in our, in our personalities, there's propensities that we have to do things. Why are they there? Where did they come from? When a little baby is born, what is the first thing people start to say when there's a new baby born? Oh, she looks like she has his smile. She has this. She has that. Oh, he looks like his dad. Oh, he's got his grandfather's nose. Or, you know, we, 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 don't we do all that? We do that. And then as they get older and they begin to develop personality, you begin to see characteristics and traits. You say, oh, boy, he's acting like his grandpa. No, he's got that, he's got that temper. Or she's sassy, just like her mom. And we, we make those comparisons, right? We do. We look at it and we have that, that concept in our minds that there's these things that are coming out in our children that and it's normal to think that way. And we understand physical characteristics. We understand where eye color comes from, hair color. Um, I've said this before as, as I've gotten a little older that I walk, when I see video of me, I walk like my father and my grandfather, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it looks like them. What is that about? I mean, they, because they, they, they walked like old men. <laughs> I should, we have to take that out of the recording. Um, but we do that. We look at those things, and we're often looking at those kinds of things. But there are behavioral characteristics that we that seem to run in families as well. Things that, patterns of behavior that seem to come up. And, the, and what we're going to deal with is those patterns that are sinful. There are sinful behaviors that seem to be, they get in a family and they just follow through. Sometimes they skip a generation or two, but then they show up again. And where, where, Does the Bible have any explanation for those things? Does it have any, any thing to say about that? And so that's what we're going, to, we're going to talk about. As we get older and we see these things, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, why did I do that? Or why do I think this way? Or the devil made me do it was a popular term when I was a kid growing up. The Flip Wilson. Remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. And um, <laughs> had to be there. <laughs> and sometimes it almost... It's not all the time, but there are times when we begin to think there's almost like some unseen force pushing me to do something that I don't want to do. What is that? And we like to say it's the devil, and people say, no, it's just you. And even in Christian circles and churches, we're not always sure how to deal with those kinds of things. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Where do these impulses come from? These things to do things or to think a certain way. Why do I react in certain situations, the same world, even though I know it's not the right way to react. I can tell myself, I know I'm supposed to react this way, but as soon as something happens, I don't. Why? I know. If I know, why don't I act the right way? What's wrong with me? And why can't I just train it out of myself? Why can't I get rid of it? Why can't I change or alter? And so we want to talk about what are the roots of those things, and is there a way to, to gain that freedom? So we all have impulses or propensities to do certain things. Like what? Well, one of the major ones in everybody is fear. 
We all deal with fear in one way or another. Now, there's good fear. You know, there's actually good fear. We're to fear the Lord. We're to fear Him and walk with Him. There's also a fear impulse. When things that are threatening to us, there's the fear of that threat, and we run. And that's a healthy fear. That's God-designed to keep us out of trouble. But there's a whole other category of fear that so many people give into anxiety, worry, doubt, unbelief. And so many times the things that we do are motivated out of fear. And the Bible talks over and over again that fear is sin. So why do we give in to fear? Why do we, as believers, give in to fear? Where does that come from? Anger, temper, abuse. Why do I get angry? Well, it's part of my sin nature. Well, why do some people seem to be given more to it than others? And why does it seem to be in some families and not so much in others? Well, that's just the luck of the draw. Is it the luck of the draw? Okay. Uh, Criticism, judgmental attitudes. I'm just going to read through a list, and we're going to deal with these later a little more in depth. But this is just this introduction today. Um, Manipulation and control. Competition. Now, competition can be okay. But do you ever meet somebody that they're always competing? And you have a conversation with them, and they always have to come out on top. Or every time you tell a story, and they always have one better. And so you tell them, and they got another one. And they always have the last word. And it's like you always feel like you're in a wrestling match with them. You're not having a discussion. You're like... And if you get two people doing that, it can get pretty intense. Where does that come from? There's a normal... There's a normal level for that, and then there's an excessive level for that. Laziness or entitlement thinking, people who are easily discouraged. Again, you can see that in families. Substance abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, tobacco abuse, those kinds of things. Seems to kind of flow. Pride, selfishness, arrogance, sexual immorality, gender confusion, and everything that goes on with sexual immorality. We're actually going to spend probably a whole morning talking about those issues, and there's a reason why I do that. (laughs) Because God talks about it a lot. And if you read through the Old Testament, and I've been doing that recently, reading through the prophets, and you have any idea how many times God calls Israel a harlot, a prostitute, immoral, because They serve other gods and not him. And he uses that as a word picture to try to get the Israelites to understand how he feels. And it's a a big area, and it's a big issue. And we'll probably spend a whole day, a whole service on that, on on those uh, particular issues. Um, Divorce is something that seems to run through families. And I thought about that. I was thinking about this. I mean, if we're all in this society, we all feel the same pressures. We all, you know, are bombarded by the same things. What's that about? Deceit, lying, stealing, jealousy, greed. And I even listed at the end, I listed trauma. Because trauma has effect. You know, whether it's abuse or whether it's actual physical trauma, there are things that can get in spiritually, and we'll talk about that, and it becomes a pattern and continues through the the bloodline. Is there a biblical scriptural explanation to these patterns? Is there a way to overcome these things? And here's the big question. I've been asked this a number of times. 
is there a way for me to prevent my children from doing the dumb things that I did? That's like the old saying, am I able to sow wild oats and then pray for crop failure? You know, can I live the way I want and then just not get the consequences? And does God's word say anything about that? Is there a way, if we look at the things that are coming down through the family, or I look at the things that I've done and think, well, how, is there a way that I can prevent my children from falling into that? Is there an answer? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? So we're going to, we're going to discuss those things. We're, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to share with you what the Scripture has to say. We're also going to look at biblical examples. There are stories in the Bible, and it's just bizarre, but when we get to it, it's like little stories that if you don't put it together, you miss what's happening. And yet if you look at it, you go, there's got to be a reason why God put that story in here. Because otherwise, it's just this little story floating out all by itself. But in this context, it seems to make sense, and we'll get to that later. What I want to do today is talk about presuppositions. I need to lay a little bit of foundation. So there's two places that we need to root ourselves in, two presuppositions. I'm going to talk philosophically a little bit, if I may, just so that we have an understanding of the the groundwork of the, the base from which we are working. And the first presupposition is this, that we are working from a Judeo-Christian basis or framework. In other words, we believe in Scripture, the Bible, God as the creator, the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, and specifically that our universe is made up of two parts, the natural and the supernatural, the physical and the spiritual. And the reason that I'm saying that is because the two realms, in my view, in my estimation, and according to Scripture, the two realms interact. In our culture today, they don't accept that any knowledge of the spiritual or any knowledge of the supernatural is valid. They don't accept that truth, okay? Now, this might seem a little strange, but I just, I just want to establish, I'm going to try to explain this to you, okay? Uh, they say that subjective knowledge is not valid. What do I mean by that? I had a backache, and I prayed, and God healed me. That's subjective. How can you prove, how can you correlate your prayer to your back? Well, when I prayed, it got better. Well, how do you know it wasn't going to get better anyway? In other words, you can't prove scientifically that your prayer healed your back or that God healed your back. You can't prove it. So today, modern secularists or humanists will say, the only knowledge that we can accept as truthful and valid is knowledge that we can submit to the experimental model, empirical knowledge. In other words, you set up an experiment, you you control the variables, you run the experiment, and you get the same results time and time again. And somebody can take the same experiment, and they can set up just what you did by following your directions. And they set the variables, and they run the experiment, and they get the exact same results. With the spiritual and supernatural, you can't do that. You can't establish that. And so that knowledge, anything that you Anything that you come to claim as truth is not valid because it's not testable, it's not provable, it's not given to that experiment. Okay, 
one more example. This is from Dr. Francis Schaeffer. He talked about two rooms, the difference between viewpoint. Picture a room with a chair in it. In the room, four walls, a floor and a ceiling, no windows. Okay? The secularist or the humanist sits in that chair and he looks at the world, which is that room, four walls, floor and ceiling, looks at the room, and he says, this is the world, and this is what I know. I can, I can measure the walls. I can see what color they are. I can test things. I can check everything out. I can determine everything I need to determine about that and because that's what I can know. And so it's a closed system. It's a naturalistic system. It's only what can be seen and observed and tested. Now, there's another room. Ceiling, ceiling, floor, four walls, a chair, and the Christian sits in that room, and there's a big window on that wall. And he sits in that room, and he can look at everything in the room. He's in the natural world. He can test everything. He can do everything that the, that the other fellow could, but he can also look out the window. And he can see out that window a whole other realm. And he can observe that realm, that spiritual realm, that supernatural realm. And there's a bit of interaction between the two, but it's hard to explain because there's kind of a separation, isn't there? We are, in our study, we are the people that are in the room with the window. That's the perspective that we're taking. We understand that our universe has two halves, the natural and the supernatural. The reason that's important is because we're going to talk about all of this is tied to the interaction between those two areas of, of our universe. Now, they are not necessarily equal parts, equal halves. It's not it's physical and spiritual. One's the same as the earth or equal to the other. The spiritual is the superior because the physical came out of the spiritual. I'm just establishing where we're coming from in this whole business. It's important that we understand this. And so if, and I think about the universe, and I think about how huge our universe is, galaxy upon galaxy, billions of galaxies that just go on forever, and the scientists, astronomers, and astrophysicists, and all these very well intelligent, highly educated people say, we finally found the edge of the universe. They say, well, what's on the other side of that? I mean, it can't just be this huge universe. And yet the universe, the created universe, is nothing to the realm that God dwells in, which is the spiritual. And that's the perspective that we need to have, that there is a superior realm. It's the supernatural realm. It's the spiritual realm that we are going to be dealing with. And it's effects and influences, interactions between those two realms. Now, in that supernatural realm is God and the angels, and Satan and demons, the fallen angels, Okay. Satan and God are not equal. Satan is a created being. And so he's subservient to and can only do what God allows him to do. And we'll talk more about those interactions as we go along. So that's the first presupposition. The second presupposition that I want to establish is that we are, as people, we're a three-part being. We are spirit, soul, and body. Okay? Three parts to our being. I know this is kind of technical, but... I need to establish this, and then we'll be able to understand as we walk through this teaching, become more practical, uh, just exactly what, why we're going through this. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, it says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He says, I, I want your whole spirit, soul, and body to receive improvement, quality of life. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And the reason that I'm making this distinction is because that there are some psychologists, there are even Christian psychologists who say that we are a two-part being. And they say that the soul and spirit are one and the body is the separate part. But the soul and spirit are one. And I don't abide by that. I, that doesn't work for me. We are spirit, soul, and body. And you'll see later that we need that explanation to understand the teachings that we're going to go into. So we're a three-part being. What is the spirit? Number one, spirit is wisdom or intuition. And what is that? Watchman Nee has a wonderful explanation. This. If you ever want to read Watchman Nee's uh, The Spiritual Man, excellent book, wrote it many years ago. Wisdom or intuition is our sensing organ, which means that you ever know something without any prior knowledge? You just hear something and you know something about it without any prior knowledge? Women's intuition? That's a part of our spirit. Another part of our spirit is conscience. What is conscience? It's the discerning organ. It's knowing right or wrong, again, without any prior knowledge. Does your conscience ever convict you? Does it ever say, ah, ah, ah. Do we listen to it? That's in our spirit. Our conscience is in our spirit. Okay? So there's a subtle difference between the two, between wisdom or intuition and conscience. Wisdom is knowing things without knowing them. Conscience is knowing right and wrong without ever having been taught that. It's just, it's there. And the third part of our spirit is communion. And that's the part of us that is able to have communion with God. In the fall, our spirit was damaged. In the fall of Adam and our sin nature that took over, we don't have the capacity for communion with God apart from relationship with him through Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus as your Savior. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, your spirit is reborn. Okay, Your conscience, your intuition or wisdom, and your communion with God are restored. They're reestablished, and it's covered with the blood of Jesus, and that's the part of you that becomes alive again. The second part of our being is our, is our soul. What is your soul? It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's what we think. It's what we feel, and it's what we decide. It's really the basis of our, of our personality. The whole point of our study is that our spirits are renewed and made new, our soul still carries damages from the past. Still carries damages from our past. That's why 
in Psalm 23, it says, the Lord restores the good shepherd. Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He refreshes my soul. He renews my soul. You ever do that with your computer? Refresh, locks up and reboot, <laughs> restore, refresh, get it straightened out. And so those are the areas. And then our body, our body is blood, flesh, and bone. So there's three, we are a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body. You got that? Keep that in mind. Our, our spirit is the part of us that's reborn. Our soul is the part of us that is being restored, or it's the process of sanctification. It's the process of moving from glory to glory as we allow Jesus to have more and more a part of us, as the Holy Spirit works in us, reshaping, reforming, renewing, causing us to grow in maturity and holiness in our walk with the Lord. And that's what is happening with us in, in our souls. Okay. We can follow the Lord and partner with him in what he's doing. We can go our own way. We're going to be talking about God and um, why God allows things to happen the way he does. If he's the creator, if he's the one who put us here on earth, we need to establish this, that um, people that I've even heard just this week, that God, how can we believe in God because he allows cruelty to go on? We hear this every so often, and it comes up again and again and again. And why does he allow hurt? Why does he allow pain? Why does he allow so much destructiveness and everything in the world? Why isn't he more compassionate? If he's loving, why does he let these things go on? Why isn't he more concerned with the condition of, of people's lives on earth? And the truth of the matter is he's more concerned than anybody could ever know. But what he did is when he created man, he gave man dominion over the earth, which means that he signed over power of attorney to man. In other words, he said, I'm giving you the earth. Take over, subdue it. And whatever you say goes. Giving you power of attorney over the earth. And so when man sins, he's welcoming the influence of the enemy and saying, God, I don't want your influence. And so it's man that allows evil. It's man that encourages evil. And we're going to explain that more as well as we go along in this study. And so for us on a personal level, because what we're going to be dealing with is what kind of choices do you make? What kind of choices do you make in your life? How, how tuned into the consequences of the choices you make, how tuned in are to, to, to what happens as a result of the things that you decide, the things that you do? Because it really is critical. It really is important, and we need to understand that. We think, very often we think, that, well, if I do this and nobody knows about it, it's not really going to hurt anybody else. And that's not true. Because there seems to be this cumulative effect of the kinds of things that cause difficulties for people. 
personally in their families and corporately in a region, in an area, in a nation. And if we're adding to the overall sin in a region by choices that we make, then what we're doing is making life more difficult for our neighbor and everybody else around us. And we don't think that way, but we are. And I'm going to explain that later. We'll get, when we get into that, we talk about strongholds and we talk about how the enemy has, why does the enemy even have any influence? He has influence because we give it to him. Why does he get away with so much? Why can he cause such problems? Because we allow him to. And it's not, God is not, in this sense of the word, I'm not, I'm not adopting a position of deism, where a deist is somebody who says God created the world and then just took his hands off and stepped back and let it go. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that God created the earth, he put man on it, he gave him authority, and he gave him power of attorney, basically, so that whatever he says goes, and he says, now, I am here to partner with you in whatever you do, but if you welcome my presence, I will come. If you reject me, then I'll pull back. But it's what you say, and it's how much you determine I will be involved that I will be involved in. You hear what I'm saying? I mean, that's just the way that I look at it. I try to simplify things so I can understand it. And if I can understand it, then just about everybody can understand it. And so God wants man to rule and have dominion over the earth in partnership with him. But he gives man the choice. He gives us the choice. And if we welcome his presence, and if we welcome his influence, and if we ask for his wisdom, and if we seek his face, then he will allow us to do the things that he wants us to do, and we will have a a positive impact on the world. Christians have an even greater impetus because they've got the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, living inside of them inside of us, which is unlimited power and potential. We're not doing so well, are we? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to share how we can begin to make a difference and see things changed and channeled and reoriented in our own families, in our own lives, in our families, and then in our community. So those are the things I wanted to establish today. Next week, we're going to hit a lot of Scripture. We're going to begin to talk about where does this whole thing begin. And it's not obscure passages of Scripture. It's right in the Ten Commandments. You don't get more basic than that. And so we will be doing that, uh, beginning our study into the Scripture and beginning to build the, the foundation of our understanding in this. And we'll see where we go from there. But I want to challenge you to think about, just think about what I've shared already, issues in your family. You might even be thinking about some things already. The areas, patterns. Does God have an answer? Does he have a way for you to deal with that? And see, as we as the body of Christ get cleaned up, as we learn to deal with these things, and begin to gain freedom, our freedom becomes a platform from which we can help others 
to gain freedom. And that's what God's intention is. And so that's what we're after, what we're pursuing. Don't ever think that maybe some of the little choices that you make don't have any effect. Even the smallest choices that we make have an effect. And we're going to show you that scripturally, if not next week, the following week. 